Hey there, I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here with me today. Got another episode of Theory of Change for everyone and should be another interesting topic, hopefully, in your opinion. But before we get started, I did want to remind everybody that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So that's flux.community. Please do visit us. We got all kinds of podcasts and articles about the larger trends in politics, religion, media, and technology. And so uh, we're waiting for you to come and check it out. So please do. And if you want to go to the Theory of Change section on Flux, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archive of Theory of Change. And we've got transcripts and audio and video. So please do check that out as well. And then if you like what we're doing here and you want to keep us bringing more programming to you with more great guests, please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. And I do want to say thank you to everybody who's supporting us already on there. And we need more. So please do support us if you can. And if you can't, you can always leave a nice review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you're using. Or if you're on YouTube, be sure to click like and subscribe so you can get notified about videos as well. So thank you very much for that. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get into today's show. Since the 1964 presidential election, Americans of African ancestry have voted overwhelmingly for Democratic presidential candidates. Republicans in most races usually get in the single digits according to decades of opinion surveys. On the surface, it may seem like Black Americans have an undying loyalty to the Democratic Party. But when you take a closer look, you see that there is a much more complicated situation. And that's because Black Americans are actually no different than any other racial group in having many different ideological groups. In fact, many Black people are actually conservative, and not just on religious matters either but they don't want to vote for a Republican party that has a decades long history of empowering and pandering to racists, especially since Donald Trump came on the political scene in 2015. But even that aspect is complicated as well because Trump actually got more black votes in 2020 than he did during his first presidential run, according to exit polling by Edison Research. In 2016, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by 69 points among black men but four years later, Joe Biden had only a 60-point margin. A similar trend happened among Black women. In 2016, Democrats won the group by 90%. In 2020, they won by 81%. This trend parallels a similar movement among Hispanic voters, which we've discussed in a previous episode, and it raises all sorts of questions. Joining me today to talk about all this is Brandy Collins-Dexter. She's the author of a book that will be coming out in September called Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. She's also a former senior campaign director at Color of Change, which is a progressive activism group. Welcome to Theory of Change, Brandy. Glad to have you here. Yes, thank you for having me on. All right. Well, so let me uh, just put the book up on the screen here. So there's the cover. And for those who are listening, it is a picture of a black man looking in a small mirror and running a razor on his head to shave it. Off. So tell us, first of all, the term skinhead. People associate skinhead with white nationalist and racist mm -hmm. white people, but that's not the connotation that you're using here. 
No, but I am drawing from the origins of the skinhead. I think a, a lot of folks, particularly in the U.S., may not be aware that skinhead as a subculture was actually, I would say, the first multicultural subculture in working class London in the 70s and 80s. So it was created by teenagers and, and young folks in, I would say, Brixton and other parts of London. And it drew from Jamaican and ska and reggae and soul music. And the aesthetic of a shaved head and the combat boot was all tied to teenagers and folks that had jobs that required them to have working boots. And what we saw over time with the skinhead is that it went from being this multicultural music and aesthetic driven subculture to getting really fractured by economic changes that were happening in London and really that kind of zero sum fighting that comes in where you start to think that other people are taking your job and opportunities. And so we saw the skinhead movement fracture and become increasingly more what we see as a white nationalist representation of that. And so that was sort of the baseline where I started from this idea of how culture shifts and how race and identity politics interrupt movements and the directions in which that drives us. And that was when I started thinking about Black Skinhead as a concept. It also is, of course, for folks that know, for Kanye fans, a shout out and acknowledgement of Black Skinhead, which is one of Kanye's songs that explores these themes of isolation, anger, and frustration with corporations and government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this book is I definitely not a typical sort of political analysis book that it's highly personal. And so it's for somebody who is not inclined to read political statistical books, I would recommend it to someone who's trying to get a better handle on what Black Americans are thinking about stuff. But in, in the course of writing, you talk to lots of different people across the country. I mean, tell us about some of the people that you were talking to. Yeah, so I'll start by saying that the writing of the book started with my time as a fellow at Harvard, and now I'm Associate Research Director at the Tech and Social Change Lab. And it started by looking at online communities, and particularly Black political expression and identity online, and how people were talking to each other, how a misinformation and disinformation was circulating in different spaces, and how that was then manifesting in political behavior expression offline. But I realized as I began to write this story that to get to the misinformation, disinformation, all of, all of these concepts that are in vogue now, you had to begin by telling the story of media and the story of Black cultural building and, and Black identity. And so with the book, I spoke to somewhere between 40 and 50 Black voters between the ages of 18 and 108 was the oldest person that I talked to of all different political leanings, Black MAGA, Black leftists that were doing write-in votes for Nina Turner in the 2020 election, capital D Democrats, and people that opted not to vote for very clear reasons. I wanted to get this holistic picture, both anecdotally and through the experiences of different folks, and then pairing that with both a data collection, raw voter data collection, research, and more traditional research and data collection and a number of different uh, additional source material to kind of like supplement or back up some of the things that I was hearing or observing in the different interviews. And then of course my own family, there are aspects of my personal memoir in it as well. 
one of the themes that you knew very well to kind of expound on is that there are multiple ways in the Black experience in America of how you can move forward. There are many stories of somebody who, through their own effort or talent, is able to exit poverty and either have a comfortable middle class or upper middle class or even wealthy lifestyle. And then you've got other people who work collectively to do things, whether that's in a union or through political organizing. And then there's people who just don't think there's a point to any of it. And they're kind of embracing the suck as the phrase goes and just kind of (laughs) accepting that nothing can change for the better. That's really kind of been when you look at the way that Black Americans have voted, that not only do you need to look at the party share, but you also have to look at the turnout. So the percentage mm-hmm. of Black people who could vote, are they actually voting? And is that fluctuating over time? And, and one of the things that is a maybe a microcosm of how all that works is the Black attitude toward Barack Obama and mm-hmm. how that's kind of shifted over time. But at the same time, there's still kind of a natural protectiveness toward him and his family. Talk a little bit about Obama in the beginning and how things changed over time or how they've stayed the same. Yeah. So just to go back a little bit, when I talk about the Black skinhead as a concept, I define that in a few ways. So I talk about Black people that don't see their voting behavior as a reflection of their political identity. So this might be people that agree with abortion, are super conservative in their own personal life, but choose to vote Democrat because they think that Democrats will better serve the Black community at scale, and they're concerned with issues of Black community improvement. So it's it's those folks who feel like their identity is kind of disconnected from their voting behavior. And then there's folks who kind of live outside the bounds of the ways in which Black voters are talked about in mainstream media spaces. So when it came to to Obama and President Obama, there were a couple of things going on there. One, we saw the rise of a presidential candidate that felt very young, very fresh, didn't really have a record to hold against him. So it could be anti-war, could be like kind of all of these things and not necessarily have old quips and a voting record to hold up against him that had this image of a Black family in a way that really resonated with people in a similar way to maybe the Cosby show or other examples of Black uh, families in pop culture. But also what I talk about in the book is that a lot of the rise of Obama tied to old-fashioned organizing. I think a lot of us that remember that time, remember that much was made of President Obama being a community organizer. Some of us remember Sarah Palin on stage talking about mayors kind of like a community organizer, except I do real work, all of these kind of things. But what we found is that community organizing works. And what we saw in Obama was a candidate that Older Black voters were not necessarily sold on in that period of time. They were much more breaking for Hillary Clinton. She seemed like the tried and true candidate that had the Clinton name behind her. A lot of Black folks, including my sister and others, were very staunch Hillary supporters. But you saw a lot of organizing take place in communities like South Carolina and other conservative places that really got Black voters to break away from what they're inclined voter behavior might be. And one of the things that I offer in the book is that what makes a candidate successful is three things. 
authenticity. So they ping as somebody that feels very true and real to Black voters in good and bad ways to viability that this candidate can win. And some of that is some of the lessons taken from the Mondale election where Black voters turned out at very high numbers for Mondale. And he got kind of slaughtered by Reagan. And I believe that was the 84. Well, and, and they also went for Jesse Jackson as yes. well during that yeah. in the primary and it yeah. didn't work. So. Yeah. But Mondale actually went back and invested a lot of time and resources in organizing Black communities, especially in places like Chicago and Illinois. He worked with Mayor Washington, who was the first Black mayor in Chicago at that time. And he did all that, but the white voters weren't there. They broke at very high numbers, historically high numbers for Reagan and the rest is history. But you have authenticity, viability, and will this person kind of move an authentic Black agenda? And what we saw through community organizing is that you were able to get voters to believe in the power of Obama and his ability to move a Black agenda. But what we saw in the years following is that in terms of, well, one, he was stepping into the 08 recession, and there was a lot of fallout from that. I think Black people lost somewhere around 50% of Black wealth from the 08 recession that has not come back. People didn't see their tangible surroundings change in a way that felt like we have this Black president, we have this symbolic representation, but we're not seeing like tangible benefits at scale. And as the online environment shifted and people became more and more fractured and frankly exploitable in a lot of ways, you see this real turn of cynicism around Obama, around the Obama legacy, around the Democratic Party in general, and people feeling like we took a chance on hope and hope didn't work out. And so you've seen people take a much more critical lens to President Obama. I think the linked fate and the pride in seeing a Black president and a Black first family is still there. But people are more willing nowadays to talk about some of the things that maybe he left unfinished during his presidency or certainly his administration did. And I think also maybe during the time when he was the president, there was kind of a contraction of Black media, um, mm -hmm. whether that was Black-owned and operated media, but also, whereas before Obama came along, to the extent that there were Black political commentators on TV, they were more kind of independent of the Democratic Party to some degree or another, like they were a reporter or they were a columnist or something like that. But when Obama came in and brought out all these new operatives in his orbit, and that many of them were Black, not all of them, some of them were not. The ones at the top were not, primarily. A lot of these people came into the, the punditry scene, and it kind of changed the way that Black commentary about politics changed. It became, seems like, a lot more institutional and explicitly defensive about the Democratic Party, protective explicitly of the Democratic Party, and saying that Black people need to just sit down and do what the Democrats say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things at play. So one of the things that I want to say is that I want to suggest the book Fire on the Prairie, which is about the rise of Harold Washington as the first Black mayor. And what we saw in the organizing and the work that had to come together to get him elected is very much the model of which Obama from America is drawn from. And a lot of the Black media makers, politicians, and thinkers that were also leftists or across different political ideologies, but certainly a lot of leftists, a lot of populists that came together to get Harold Washington elected. Those were some of the people that Obama also drew from when he was beginning his run. So these would be the folks like 
Jeremiah Wright, Michael Dawson, a number of different folks we could name. Chicago Defender, we, yeah. All of that, but Lou Palmer. But what we saw actually happen is that when Obama got elected, some of those more leftist grassroots folks were actually left behind. We saw infamously with Reverend Wright that he was publicly condemned by Obama in what turned out to be this really devastating way. So the Black folks that went to D.C. and and kind of took on this new class, those were not necessarily, I would argue, not all of those folks were necessarily the people that were core to the base building model that helped him win. But the other aspect of this is that, and I can say this as somebody who was doing digital organizing and doing a lot of work during the Obama administration, it was so hard to organize against him. We would have things that we were fighting for and pushing back on in terms of economic policy or lack thereof, like some of the things that were taken out of what became Obamacare, others. And there was definitely this sense of you can't make the Black president look bad. You can't call him out publicly. So it wasn't just the pundits and the, and the political ops that were moving into television. It was also just even in attempting to do grassroots organizing, it fundamentally changed when we had a Black president because it was that much harder to critique and hold him accountable in the same way that other presidents theoretically could be. Yeah. Well, and to that end, you mentioned briefly, and I wanted to kind of pick that back up as a, as a broader topic, the idea of linked fate as a political motivator among Black Americans. Tell us a little bit about what that concept is. What does it mean? Yes. So linked fate is a concept that comes from Dr. Michael Dawson, who's a professor at University of Chicago. And he did what I think still continues to be one of the most robust survey of Black political identity and expression and looked at all of the different political leanings and also offered this term called linked fate. And that was the ways in which Black people engage, build community, work, and vote in ways that operate towards a greater good of the community. A very classic example of this as far as voting behavior is something I mentioned earlier, whereas you may have a upper middle class or wealthy Black voter who as an individual would benefit more from tax breaks or a number of different types of economic policies that preserve wealth at the top. But because of linked fate and this concern around the welfare of Black community and Black people and being able to have a level of empathy in which you see when something happens to someone else in your community, it's as though it's happening to you. Because of that, that's been the gel that's kept Black voters at a sort of 90% Democratic voter base and has been able to be organized in these different ways historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a way of cutting across class or education and getting people yes. to understand that things that you may not perceive as directly relevant to you, they're still relevant to people who you know and, and where you come from. And all of um, our fates are, are linked together. So if something mm-hmm. happens to this person over here, even though I might be in a different place, if we allow that to happen to this Black person, then that means we're now vulnerable in our safe space. Yeah. Well, and over time, though, that concept in some ways has kind of broken down somewhat among Black Americans. And some of that has been along political lines in terms of frustration with feeling like Obama did not live up to his end of the bargain on that. But then also just as you now have some 
black families who have multi-generational wealth or multi-generational mm -hmm. middle-class status, it's harder for the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of somebody who came up in Southern segregation to have any memory or see that as a relevant experience to them. But I would say you could even go further back to that with the idea of the talented 10th, mm -hmm. uh, which was originally the concept that was floated very early on as a way of helping Black people advance societally. But in a lot of ways, I think you could argue that it kind of it made it so that some people shifted from looking out for the community to looking out for themselves. But I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there's a couple things I would say there. Well, I think one of the concepts that we see in the Talented 10th that may be more familiar to your audience is that essentially it's a type of trickle-down economics, or that's how it can manifest in some ways. Which is ironic because W.E.B. Du Bois was definitely not <laughs> a conservative by any stretch exactly, of the imagination. Exactly. Uh -huh. But this idea that like the top 10% are the most learned, the, the, the people that have the responsibility and the power to kind of uplift the race. But how that has manifested in more modern times is this idea that if we build this wealth at the top, that'll be what kicks down and supports the people at the bottom. So there's more this preoccupation with drilling a hole in glass ceilings than there is in lifting the floor at scale. And so that's one of the things that we've seen, even when we look at issues around corporate power and the ways in which major corporations, you can say Comcast, Google, you can run them down, have been really adept at centering Black executives or Black voices as a way to neutralize more progressive fights around and calls for regulation. But the other thing I'll say too is that one of the things that I think I took for granted before I started diving into this book is that Black culture is a very 20th century creation, I would argue, in a lot of ways. It's certainly something that's post-slavery because a lot of it is driven by the ability to share, to build a shared story and to circulate a shared story. Oh, and so, to perceive that you had a shared story, to even yes. be aware that that existed. Yes, um. that was something that really couldn't happen pre-Civil War. And so really, especially in the early 20th century, you see the rise of Black-owned newspaper and media. I think there was over 100 Black newspapers in Illinois alone. You see the rise of Black radio. You see the rise of public spheres, spheres that become these places where Black culture is developed and codified and where movement building comes from. And what you've seen over time, because of deregulation, a number of other things that started happening under Reagan, accelerated under Clinton, got even worse so under Obama, et cetera, et cetera, is that those localized spaces for media and business ownership are gone or are being eroded away in the 2008 recession made that even, even worse. A lot of black wealth was tied in the land that churches were owned was tied on those things that got lost in the housing crisis. And so because of the absence of that, that makes it harder to cultivate a shared consciousness, a shared story, a type of linked fate. And I think that's that's also part of this. Yeah. And related to that is that as the idea of a shared Black story or experience broke down, it also has created opportunities for right-wing Republican ideologues to try to make inroads among Black Americans. And of course, there are a lot of Black Americans who are conservative, like attitudes towards same-sex marriage. Black mm -hmm. Americans were 
the, the group that was the most opposed to same-sex marriage for the longest time as a majority. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, a lot of that plays into religion. But Republicans have always been trying to crack that nut to get people who agree, who share a lot of the same fundamentalist religious perspectives as them, might not believe in evolution, might think that homosexuality should be criminalized, to say, well, look, we agree with all that stuff too. You should vote for us. But their willingness to pander to segregationists in the beginning and now with white nationalists, it's made it harder for them. But at the same time, things are beginning to crack and um, in terms of media ownership, there's an interesting little side note to that. There's this guy named Armstrong Williams. Armstrong Williams is a, a, a conservative Republican activist and commentator with this company called the Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is mm-hmm. a Republican-linked company that owns lots of local affiliates across the country. But they also have carved out a space for him where he has his own company and basically, he, as far as I know, may be one of the, if not the largest minority owner of television stations in America. And he's just a regular Republican activist. And you, when you look at the way that Republican media enterprises, they actually seem to make a better effort to... Yes put forward black voices, I would say, and to support them, whether that's Candace Owens or like they got really big behind this woman named Kim Klasik, who was running a really long shot campaign in Maryland where you live. They're constantly trying to put forward black voices, but, you know, they're doing it not in always a very authentic way. You call a lot of these people black conservative avatars. Talk about all this a little bit if you could. Yeah. So in my book, Black Skinhead, I have these two chapters. And so one is called Abomination of Abomination. And the second one is called My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And in Abomination, I really talk about the rise of the black conservative avatars. Somebody who becomes or people who become this kind of pundit class that proclaim to speak for Black people and Black communities, but don't actually have a Black base. Part of where this comes from is Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk and this development of trying to appeal to younger voters with conservative and how Candace Owens enters into that transitioning from she was originally a progressive feminist journalist that was once seen talking about Donald Trump's penis size and proclaiming that it was very small and all of this typical stuff. And then all of a sudden she goes through a scandal around doxing and emerges as red pill black girl which is this pundit who's coming out as a Republican, talking about how she's a victim and has all of this dark money swirling around her and gets uplifted as this voice. You also have at the same time folks like Diamond and Silk who were Democratic voters. I don't even, I I can't even remember if they voted in the 2016 election, but it's these people. And then you have Alexander Ali, who is one of the organizers of the January 6th insurrection. So you have a lot of these folks that are getting promoted in right-wing spaces as people that proclaim to speak for Black folks. But the interesting part about it is not only do they not, I can't remember if this got cut because of legal, but I think I said in the book that I don't think Candace Owens could lead Black people at scale off the Democratic plantation if she was wearing a sexy Harriet Tubman outfit that says for liberation turn right. But what we do have is, how, as you pointed out, a lot of Black conservatives 
who are emerging who can be organized a little more. And so part of what you're seeing, particularly at the local level, is the rise of what's called, they call themselves the conscious Black conservatives. And so they are conservatives that have an explicitly pro-Black lens and are more of a callback to the traditional Black conservative like the Booker T. Washington or the others. And they are some of the folks that have been organizing, talking to folks like Kim Klasik, she's interesting, she's had a foot in both worlds, but have definitely been successful at getting more candidates out there. I believe right now there's more Black people in the Republican Party in Congress right now than we've had since Reconstruction or, or a similar number. And then in the midterms coming up, there's 81 Black Republicans running for, I believe, 72 congressional seats in the midterms. And so they're out there, they're organizing. And I think the question is, can voters tell the real from the fake? Can they tell the kind of ops with Kanye's 2020 run being a classic example of that versus folks who they think can actually have a positive impact in their community? And and that's some of the stuff that we're really paying attention to and, and that I'm certainly watching going into this and future elections. Yeah, just to go back to Kanye West, though. So we talked before the show that he's kind of somebody who is a good reflector of the people who are around him and mm-hmm. kind of repeats back the things they say in, in, a, in a remix kind of fashion. But at the same time, he does seem to have some genuine beliefs, which kind of do map to this Black conservative tradition. And he had them before he fell in with people like Candace Owens and Mm -hmm. and Donald Trump. I think you can see that way back when he was trying to say that he was going to rebrand the Confederate flag to be his flag because he believed that you could, if you just did it hard enough or use celebrity enough, you could overcome any sort of discrimination or problem. It's funny though, because that attitude is really straight out of Norman Vincent Peale, who was actually Donald Trump's pastor when he mm. was growing up as a kid. So it's almost inevitable that he would be drawn to Donald Trump in that way. But there are a lot of Black people who have this idea, like what West infamously said, that slavery was a choice. But he didn't quite mean it in that way, but it was still a very strange remark. Talk a little (laughs) more about Kanye West in all of this and how you write about him in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, so one thing I'll say, as you mentioned at the top, is that this isn't necessarily going to be a traditional political book that takes a very straight and narrow road to the end. For me, I think I'm a latchkey kid. I'm a product of pop culture. And so how I relate things and how I understand terms tends to be to link them back to something that feels familiar with me or familiar to me. And so as I was looking at certain Black voter expression online and how that was operating in certain spaces, I noticed that a lot of it sounded very similar to what we were hearing Kanye West say. And, and I, it was, I believe in 2019 when he released the Jesus is King album, which is a gospel album and talks a lot about how um, he was canceled before cancel culture. So no more living for the culture. He's nobody's slave. So he's like kind of playing around with a lot of this language of being able to liberate himself from mental slavery. And I wanted to know why. I wanted to know where that came from. I also think it's very different from his mother, Donda, who people that know him know she was a heavy influence in his life. But what a lot of people may not know 
is that she was a professor, an academic, and she was one of the first people to talk about Ebonics as coded language and part of Black culture, an important expression in a way in which Black people spoke to each other when they were being surveilled by white eyes and ears, and so sort of legitimizing it as a field. So her backstory is very tied to preservation of Black culture and experience, and it's very wild that she has this son who's talking about no more living for the culture. But when you look at his bio a little bit, you see one, that he comes from a family from Oklahoma that has this very much bootstraps mentality that speaks to the more traditional leanings of Black conservatism. But also, I believe he was raised middle class. He, His mother took him to Japan, where I think he lived for a few years. He went to the Chicago schools and where he went to as a young person. It was like a gifted tech school. And I think he spent a lot of time alone as an only child mulling over a lot of concepts and processing them in a way that I think feels different from his mom's approach. And so how I treated Kanye, I saw him as an entry point into certain types of Black conservatism, but also identifying the ways in which that feels somewhat in conflict in ways in which I think he's in conflict. And Essentially, I see him as a quintessential Black skinhead and somebody who's an example of somebody that when you put yourself in isolation and you lose your community, this is the path that you start to take and this is the road that you start to go down. And so that's how I treat him as a subject throughout this book. And also, he's the one that introduced the world to Candace Owens. Him simply tweeting, I like the way Candace Owens thinks, is the thing that really propelled her into this different space, got her meeting at the White House with Donald Trump etc. So he's very much introducing these different concepts into pop culture, but he's also, as you said, very moldable and sort of being shifted around by different folks in different ways, if that makes sense. Yeah. The other thing about West as a political person is that he's got this innate religious conservatism about himself, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, he also had extensive contact with the Black radical tradition as well. And you can see that in some of the things that he's said over the years. But he's useful to Republicans, not just as a way of trying to peel off Black voters, whether it's to vote for Trump or to vote for him as a third party candidate, but also because he's got this idea of, and you talk about it very briefly, that people on the political left have talked a lot about voter suppression laws designed to keep Democratic voters from showing up at the polls and voting, but there's also the idea of voter depression, which is you could vote and you could register and you have no problem with that, but you choose not to vote. And that actually for the longest time has been a very important tool in Republican electoral politics, but it's grown much, much more important in recent years. Yeah, I think Kanye appeals to a certain type of desired masculine identity, particularly for voters under a certain age. And so one of the questions that's consistently come up is how he's appealing particularly to Black male voters. And I think we've seen trends for Black voters across gender, but certainly Black men more and more in different elections. We've even seen that in some of the California elections recently are really emerging as potentially this kind of like a new voter base that's tied to more conservative kind of like manosphere ideology that we've seen come up in places like Gamergate and others. But as far as these kind of third party runs, I think they're really interesting. I mean, when Kanye was running, I'm not sure anybody thought that he was 
being serious. I didn't think he was being serious. And he put out this really interesting platform. But what we saw later was that there were a lot of Republican ops running it. And I think that what he was going for is this idea of peeling off certain type of voters. But what we see with voter depression is this idea of people telling you that there's no point of even turning up to vote because it doesn't matter. And as you've said, like the Trump campaign played around with this a lot. I think when he gave his speech in Michigan, right after he won an election, I think he specifically said, thank you to black voters for not turning out. We saw that a little bit with the Russian ads that were playing around with these ideas of trying to convince, trying to get black people so disillusioned, so caught up in the horror of current circumstances that they believe that their vote doesn't matter, that no matter who they vote for, who wins, that their conditions won't change. And even though there's a lot of questions about how successful the Russian ads were, we've certainly seen the Republicans pick up a lot of those tactics and a lot of those tools Mm -hmm. and through their digital infrastructure have really pushed this idea of getting folks to stay home, particularly Black voters. And then they've also, not just with West, and I wrote about this a couple of months ago, Republicans have explicitly set up candidates targeting black voters. So like they they ran a, a woman in Virginia whose relative had been shot by police. And they ran her as a third party candidate in Florida. Several people have been accused of paying people to run third party okay. candidates. And they used ads featuring exclusively black imagery to target black voters to get them not to vote for the Democrat. And it really does kind of hit into a soft, tender spot, though, for a lot of black Americans, because a lot of black people do feel disenchanted with the Democratic Party, that they haven't done enough for them. It seems like it was effective in some of these races that they targeted. I think, yes. I mean, I think what makes them effective is the loss or failure of public spheres to engage in these conversations around candidates. I think in an optimal world, at least for me, I don't think that a two-party system works. Certainly, I would like to explore different things like instant runoff voting or other models. But I think what I say in the book, and I think what we see through the ways in which people engage politically, is that we have this two-party system and there's a lot of people for whom neither of those parties are working. And ideally, we'd like to imagine a scenario in which we could vote with our heart and consciousness. But the reality, as you've said and as you've shown, is that we do have a lot of ways in which in lieu of parties actually becoming better and speaking to the issues and concerns of individuals, they're more preoccupied with getting people to not vote at all or to vote for these different candidates that don't have the best of intentions. And if we had more public spaces, more community-owned media, more places where people could vet these candidates, frankly, and talk about these things in community, I don't think these candidates stand a chance, but in a space where we don't have that and then people are going online and looking for information and building their community online in ways where they don't even know who they're building their communities with and voting in isolation, that makes it a lot easier for these type of operations to be successful. So we'll certainly continue to see that more and more. And I think we'll more and more see not just Black voters, but younger voters across different groups more and more peel off for candidates who may not have the best interests of the community at heart. Yeah. Well, one of the other, and you 
touched on it briefly just a little bit ago. One of the things that you do talk about a lot in the book is the role of feminist ideas among Black Americans. That's also kind of a tension among Black Americans, especially with Black men being on the one hand, the most likely to date outside of their race, but then also the most likely to disapprove of Black women dating outside of their race. And so as a result, Black women are the least likely to date outside of their race. But then also when you mix in religious fundamentalism and how that often tends to keep women down. And then you contrast that with the larger kind of white dominated feminism, which tended to basically ignore a lot of the struggles of Black women or more broadly, lower income women or unemployed women. So there's a lot going on there. I mean, to some extent, it seems like having more of a bigger presence for feminism within the Black community would be helpful for that, especially in terms of pop culture, where you have a lot of rappers and such who who really make degrading and awful references to women and talk about how they should be treated. So one of the things that I say in the book that I think is really important is that Black women have and continue to be the heart of the Democratic Party and of Black voting. And when you look at different books, Anthea Butler is somebody who's written a lot about how religion drives voting and policies and community. One of the things she talks a lot about is that even in the most conservative Black religious spaces, it was women in the church who were driving progressive ideals and making the Black church this sizable voter base that it is today. And conservative Black women are in a lot of ways responsible for the sort of conservative Black center of the of the Democratic Party as well. So that that's really, I think, an interesting tension. But what we've seen in general in online spaces is a lot of misogyny, a lot of deep-seated resentment towards women. We've seen it in Gamergate. We've seen it in some of the different mass shootings and the rise of the incel. And this is unfortunately no different in certain Black spaces. I think a lot of people, when they talk about the misogyny that we're seeing, they talk about it through a specifically white male lens. But one of the things that we are seeing is that there's also resentment from males of color towards women in their community. And that's manifesting in a number of different ways. And that's part of what we're seeing in some of the different elections and what we're seeing in sort of the resentment of the idea that the Democratic Party has to is only concerned with appealing to Black women or that Black women are driving the Democratic Party. And part of the response to that I see is Black men kind of setting up ground more in the Republican Party and being drawn to these candidates like a Donald Trump, who I think prior to him getting into the political game was the most or one of the most name-checked white men in hip-hop, so had this comfortable presence within hip-hop culture. Yeah, he did. And there's this company that conducts polling about celebrities, which they call the Q score. And Donald Trump's Q score among Black Americans was the highest Mm -hmm. out of all racial groups before he got (laughs) into politics. But at the same time, just to jump off your point there, one of the ways in which some of that Black male misogyny is manifesting is in the growth of this movement called HOTEPs. It's still a pretty small movement, but you know what? They get a lot of attention and they're pretty active for themselves. Tell the audience about 
what hoteps are and what they're all about. So I think the thing about it is hoteps in general are not necessarily new. They were definitely around when I was in college, which was the early 2000s. But I'm trying to think of the the researcher. I want to say it was, uh, is it Moya Bailey, the author of Massage Noir? There's folks out there that talk about hoteps, which are people that use a lot of the language of hoteps, which is this traditional, it's more of a Black nationalist frame and this idea of men being the center of the home and the importance of Black family and Black culture. But what we've seen with the photap has this more cynical turn. It dabbles in a little bit of, depending on who you're dealing with, some conspiracism. I, I believe Hotep Jesus was on Joe Rogan talking about how soy milk is making men infertile or something like that and had some different ideas about whether or not the transatlantic slave trade even happened. And some of them are even talking about how Black women should naturally not have periods. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, the internet's a wild place. What can you say? But part of what's happening, even with my work around disinformation, misinformation, I say, if you want to deal with disinformation or misinformation, fix the system. Disinformation grows in the soil of discontent. And as we see, as the economy has taken a downturn, as certain people are either unable to get sustainable jobs or working multiple jobs and still not making livable wages, saddled with student debt, that kind of resentment builds up. It becomes very easy to go online and find these different spaces in which those hostilities can be turned towards specific groups. And we see a lot of that towards women. We see a lot of that towards elected candidates. And so it really is a sort of give and take that you see playing out onto offline. And I guess one of the other things about it, though, is that people don't always search for the right answers to their problems. But these are still legitimate problems that they may be facing. And one of the, unfortunately, one of the Democratic establishment's response to this has been to kind of just say there's nothing wrong with the system. And, yeah. and a lot of that has to do with the fact that after the reactionaries took over the Republican Party in the 60s, 70s, that you had a migration of people out of the Republican Party who were considered liberal Republicans into the Democratic Party, but they were actually more kind of moderate Democrats. And they even did it with regard to this idea of identity politics, which was originally, you know, created to be a, a way of expanding the class struggle idea to also include the ways in which class is manifested. So whether that's racial or gender uh, discrimination, geographic or other ways. And one of the phrases that you use in the book here, and I'm just going to quote it here because I liked it. You said that identity politics became more about dressing up neoliberalism in a coat of many colors than leveraging black culture and organizing to win economic power at scale. Tell us a little bit more what you mean by that. Yeah. So one of the things that we saw during the civil rights movement in particular is that the movement became quite fractured. And so you saw the rise of more working class ideas. You had people there that were saying, hey, we have to deal with economics. We have to deal with working class conditions. We have to deal with the things that are happening in our community. And then you had people that were concerned more with the kind of like respectability politics aspect of it and the talented tenth, as you will. And one of the things that we saw is that when the civil rights legislation was passed, it was left to 
HR departments and corporations to implement those things. And so a lot of those kind of hard fought victories around employment and jobs and other things became more about getting black executives into these different positions than it was things like increasing minimum wage, ensuring that the kind of narratives that propelled New Deal policies are still in play, supporting candidates who are a continuation of the New Deal ideals. And so in the 80s and 90s, you really saw more of this turn of the Cosby neoliberalism, let's say Cosby show, Huxtable family neoliberalism, because I don't know if we want to talk about Bill Cosby, but this idea that it's about making it, that it's about getting up to that talented tent, that you have these executives in positions of power at corporations that are fundamentally toxic and harmful to our communities. And so if you look at like Black Enterprises list of best companies to work for, for Black people, it's a who's who of companies that are actually really bad for Black people. You have Comcast, you have Google, you have a number of different companies who we know have carried out a number of policies and practices that are devastating to working class Black folks at scale. But because you have Black people making more money at those companies and then being the people that go into the meetings and tell you why those companies can't change, that's seen as progress. That's seen as the desired goal for us. And because of that, we didn't complete the mission with that civil rights movement. And I think even in the 21st century civil rights movement are still so easily, frankly, co-opted by corporate interests. I think that is part of what fuels a lot of the disillusionment for people that aren't seeing tangible benefits at scale in their communities. Yeah. Well, and I would also say that turning civil rights over to the HR department, I mean, the reality is everyone hates the HR people. Yeah. Like, they are the people in every company that everyone hates because they're the ones that screw you over. Their job is to take as much as they can from the employees and give as little in return as possible. And so not only does that serve to sort of depress the people that it's ostensibly designed to help, but it also increases the resentment for white people, or like it leads to that the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action are white women. Because when the enforcer of a policy is something that everyone hates, uh, well, then it's not a surprise that no one likes the policy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's also just the market or the racket around the diversity and inclusion hustle. I mean, the idea that people could go into a one to two hour training and deal with bias that's been passed down generation to generation or for centuries. Like I've gone into some of these diversity trainings and come out mad. So I can sort of imagine how that might feel for others. And so I think that approach to dealing with the issues of racism and racist systems in our societies has failed quite spectacularly. And I think that's left to your point, a lot of people, more disillusioned, more turned off, more grasping for answers that allows for the Trojan horse of right-wing disinformation operations and others to slide in there and make themselves right at home quite easily. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because it also works on the opposite end. So that not only does it radicalize a lot of younger white people who do see these awful departments doing these things, it radicalizes them, but then also it actually will radicalize 
some black and Hispanic people. So like the Proud Boys, for instance, their leader mm -hmm. is a, a Hispanic man. And um, I think he may have some African ancestry as well. There is a fair number of Proud Boys mm -hmm. when you see them with their mug shots up on the screen. They're not white. Um, mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, the way that some people in the mainstream press or left of center press, when they look at that, they just can't understand that these people would do that. And somebody came up with this term, the multiracial white supremacy. And I understand what they're trying to say with that, but it's such an absurd term on its face that people just laugh at it. And then it also, it does miss the role of religion and anti-feminism that really is what's binding these groups together. And, and you can see that like with the Kanye West song, Jesus is King, that was adopted wholesale by Nick Fuentes, who is this white nationalist, and he uses that as a tagline, just explicitly quoting Kanye West. There's just so much unfamiliarity on the part of a lot of neoliberal wealthy elites with the way that people are actually living their lives that they just can't understand any of this stuff. They can't even compute it. Seems yeah. Like. I mean, there's a couple of different things. So like Nick Quintez, well, actually, let me just say this fun fact. One of my cousins, a black woman was at January 6th, didn't get arrested. So presumably didn't do any crazy thing, but you know, she was there. She identifies as a patriot. I've seen her kind of go down this hole specifically through QAnon, which is a whole other story. But Nick Fuentes is also interesting because his entry point into conservatism, according to published reports, is through Thomas Sowell, who is a Black libertarian. That was who Nick was was quoting and looking to early on in his political development. And then Kanye has been a huge influence to him. Nick is also from Chicago, from a predominantly white area. But I think where a lot of people are failing or where I think media is failing to tell the story of what's happening is by allowing or only understanding the frame of nationalism through a white lens, which is, again, goes back to why I chose to call the book Black Skinhead intentionally, because people in their mind associate skinhead with being one thing and putting Black in front of it, potentially something different or maybe not. But in terms of how nationalism is defined in this country that has been engaging in a multicultural experiment for so long is there is a lot of people that identify with the idea of nationalism, that identify with populist rhetoric that appeals to Americanism. When I did my DNA test, which I had to do for some research for this book, my DNA traces back to like the 1600s, the arrival of some of the early slave ships into Virginia. So it's like, I don't have another country to call my own. America is my country. I, I feel very American. I feel like I have a certain right to it. And I know a lot of people who are very bought into this idea of American identity. And because of the fact that we're so used to talking about January 6th or, or Trump or all of these things through the specific lens of white nationalism and not necessarily appreciating that the idea of American nationalism has a certain resonance for a number of different communities, including newer immigrant communities. It really frazzles the brain when people see how diverse the Proud Boys could be or see people at January 6th or other places with their don't tread on me flags and other things. But I think until people really, until particularly the progressive left and media and other spaces really wrap their head around why and how this messaging is landing. 
with folks, I think that there will continue to be failures to really build a true multiracial leftist movement that can see the progress that I think a lot of people want to see. Yeah. And one way that they really fail at that is that they don't understand the role that education plays. I mean, the vast majority of Americans do not go to college, do not have a college degree. But that seems to be primarily the thing that they emphasize, you know, you need to go back to school. Well, I never went there in the first place. And for people who came up in poverty and let's say they got some job at a manufacturing plant and then the plant closes down, they don't have any ability to contemplate going to college to get a degree. Like that means nothing. It's like telling them the equivalent of, well, why don't you learn how to walk on your hands? Like (laughs) it's, it's totally irrelevant. And this is something- And it's offensive, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the things that is my trouble zone that I talk a little bit about in the book with who speaks for the left and leftist ideals. And a lot of times- what I see or experience are a lot of people that occupy a certain class status, read certain books. When I hear people on sometimes certain podcasts, like I can't even fully understand what they're saying. And I, I went to law school. I think I'm like a decently intelligent person, but it's not necessarily the way in which the language, the language and the sources and the ways in which people are talking, it's really hard for that to be something that resonates with the people that would truly benefit from the policies that you're advocating for. And there's obviously some notable exceptions to that. But again, I think that's one of the failures of a modern left movement. And there's some interesting things happening in the labor space to be sure, but you also see this like clash of kind of the labor and Jacobin movements and clear misalignment in terms of how to approach organizing a movement that can be successful. And I think a lot of that comes down to education, to people are speaking to the interest of people that have to work three jobs just to make ends meet and are not making ends meet, et cetera, et cetera. One of the biggest dichotomies between the left and the right is how they invest in media. So yes. like the left basically puts nothing into media. And it shows they are constantly trying to, they're constantly complaining that, oh, our voters, they just don't vote in the midterms. They don't do this, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also because you never talk to them and you never see what it is that they want. So they spend all this money on voter registration stuff, but then after the election's over, they don't stay in touch with them to find out. Because, I mean, it's not that hard to get registered to vote over the span of multiple years. You can do it if you want to. But a lot of people choose not to. And rather than ask them, well, why don't you choose to? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not just, well, I am really busy with work or things like that. Obviously, that's a reason for some people. But you make time for the things that matter to you. And it's clear that a lot of people feel like that participation is not going to be helpful to them. It's not worth their time. And so therefore, instead of just badgering them to register and then to vote, you need to ask them, why haven't you been as interested in it? And to actually learn what they tell you. (laughs) Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that. So, I mean, I think there's like a couple things there. So like one thing, one thing that I talk about in the book is I talk about Phil Agri, who was writing for Wired in the 90s and talks about the ways in which you're quite familiar with the right wing 
for a long time has been building up these alternative media structures and institutions specifically to challenge progressive entities to co-opt a certain language and repurpose it, a number of other things. And I think the left has just been low behind on that for a number of different reasons. And we see that really clearly. And now we're seeing like a fully kind of maturing media ecosystem that Breitbart and others have very carefully built out over time. But I would say the other thing that's interesting to me that I talk about in the Obama for America chapter that I did is that that was what was so remarkable about Obama for America 1.0. They used a lot of grassroots organizing media structure, kind of like early internet to build out this consciousness around voting as something other than something that you just do on one Tuesday every four years. And after Obama got elected, and especially after 2012, a lot of that infrastructure was just abandoned. But the right has actually picked that up. And Groundbreakers, one of the books that documents Obama for America and the infrastructure of organizing that was built around it, is actually required reading for Republicans. And it has been very much used in organizing. I've seen it turn up in the Black right-wing organizing that's happening. So it's like we took away all the wrong lessons, I would argue, from the from the 08 Obama election and the right-wing took away all the right lessons and are showing that it still works. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Hey, well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for being here today, Brandy. Yep. Thank uh, you for having me on. So uh, we've been talking with Brandy Collins Dexter. She's on Twitter at Branding Brandy. That's B-R-A-N-D-I. And she's the author of the book, Black Skinhead, which is a really nice in-depth look at Black political culture in the United States. And that's going to be coming out in September, but you can pre-order it now at whatever bookseller place you are interested in. Thanks. So that is the program for today. And I appreciate everybody for being here on your favorite podcast platform or YouTube or just reading the plain old transcript at flux.community. And please do visit us over there. And uh, you can go to theoryofchange.show to get all the episode archives as well. And if you like what we're doing here, please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. And I really want to say thank you to people who are currently supporting us. Uh, We definitely need your help to explain the larger trends in politics, media, and religion. So we really appreciate any help with that. And everyone who's a Patreon member, you get access to all of our transcripts. Some of the transcripts are available for non-members, but if you are a member, you get access to everything and you get a few other things as well. So, so thank you for being here today. And I hope to catch you in the next episode. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. 
The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.